The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. Let me pray for us. Oh, we thank you that we are welcome in your presence and in your great love for us. It is only natural for us to open up our hearts and to love you back and to say, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Lord, in our hearts, come and reign over us. Have your way among us. Speak now, Holy Spirit, to us through the living word of God. We ask that you would accomplish your good purposes in us, that we would bear good fruit. We ask Holy Spirit in Jesus' name, amen. Hear God's word from 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13. This is instructions for deacons. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much Wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Well, I got a question. Here ends the reading of his word. Now, my question is, is what makes a good waiter or a waitress in your experience? Have you been to a restaurant? Maybe you've been to a place regularly. What, what makes a good waiter or waitress? You remember a few weeks ago I shared what made a bad waitress and how we could tell that we were a burden to this lady and that she, was, she had a lot of work to do and she didn't really want us to be a part of the plan. <laughs> and, um, but I think some things that you should think about with a good waiter or waitress, I'm going somewhere with this, is they should be polite, courteous, smiling hopefully and helpful and hopefully they have a good sense of timing. You know, when are you ready to order? When are you needing a refill? When, do you, when are your plate is finished and they can actually come and take your plate? And, um, and then when to bring the, the check. And they also have a great knowledge of the menu and the various ingredients that are in the various entrees served and they can make recommendations if needed. But I think the best quality of a good waiter or waitress is they know before you ask. They just anticipate what is needed next and they meet the need before you even ask. Well, what in the world does this have to do with deacons? Well, guess what the Greek word diakonos really means? Table waiter. Wouldn't you like to be a table waiter for Jesus? I mean, well, the Bible makes a big deal about this. So the office of deacon is the office of a servant, and one of these primary definitions of diakonos is a waiter, one who serves food and drink. Well, the office of deacon, if you recall, came about in Acts chapter 6. 
And in Acts chapter 6, we are told in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, these were the Greek uh, Christians, they arose against the Hebrews. So now we've got tension going on because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They set them before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and a number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So what do we have? Well, we, we had a problem. The apostles had a big dilemma in front of them. Do we neglect the physical and tangible needs in the body, or do we neglect the word of God and prayer? That was the dilemma. And we only have so much time, and we have to focus and make our choices, and, and aren't we glad that the account didn't end at Acts 6-2? It doesn't simply say that the apostles gathered together and they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. End of story. Therefore, we're not going to do daily distributions anymore. No more help in tangible needs in the community. Did they say that? They also didn't say, well, we're going to do daily distribution from now on. No more preaching the word. We are going to meet the needs until those needs are met. And when the needs are met, then we'll start preaching again. Did they say that? They didn't say that either. So what did they do? Well, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they said, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom and whom we will appoint to this duty, but we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Problem solved. A new office is created. And notice who picks the deacons. They were picked by the whole and appointed and ordained by the 12. And so we have this wonderful balance of bottom-up and top-down leadership. And there was a criteria of qualifications. The apostles said they wanted men and this is the Greek word andros, andros, not anthropos, so not the generic term, but specifically males who were of good repute, good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, bearing fruit and, and wisdom. And so the apostles uh, did this and the people chose their, their officers and both the ministries flourished, word and deed. And so neither was neglected. And the church goes forward it, with these two things of word and deed. It's hand and glove. It's engine and transmission. You kind of need both if you're going to move that car. Well, the, for the church to work, we're not just a chaplaincy. We don't just preach the word and say bye-bye. We also do deed ministry. That's why we do things like backpacks and things like that because that gives credibility. It adorns the gospel with good work so that people, and more and more we need to do this, in a world where the church is losing its influence, where does the church regain its influence? When they look and say, man, look how they love one another and look how they love the community and look at the good deeds 
that they do. We adorn the gospel. And so as we do the deed ministry, it gives credibility to the word ministry. You have to have both. And so this was so impressive. It says a great number of the priests even came to, came to faith as a result of this. And so this is the reason for the deacons. It's so that the ministry of the word and prayer can blossom on, on the one hand and flourish under the direction of the elders and the elders can devote themselves to that, but that also the ministry of mercy and tangible expressions of deed ministry and love can blossom and flourish in the local congregation under the leadership administration and humble example of the deacons. You need both. And Jesus was the perfect example of being both a deacon and an elder. His ministry, was it more of word or was it more of deed? It was both. And so often his deed ministry led to his teaching ministry. He fed the 5,000 and then he sat down and, and, or, and he taught them that he was the bread of life. He healed a blind man and then he taught that he was the light of the world. He raised Lazarus from the dead and then taught them what? That he was the resurrection and the life. Actually, he proclaimed that first and then raised Lazarus from the dead. And when the disciples were arguing about who would be the greatest among them, well, Jesus took a, a towel and stripped himself to serve and wash the disciples' feet and said, blessed are you if you follow my example. 1 John 3.18, John says to us, brothers, let us not love in word, but also in deed. And Lake Duncan puts it like this, great servant of the church. He says, and so deacons are given to the church as a gift so that the church will love in both word and deed, so that the truth will be ministered in the congregation and so that mercy will be ministered in the congregation. The gospel ministry is a ministry of word and deed, neither can be neglected, and so it is for the church's well-being to have two classes of officers that are devoted to the fostering to both of these aspects of the ministry of the church. The deacon's work is to complement the elder's ministry of word and prayer and the deacon is to lead the local congregation's ministry of mercy to those who are in need in the local congregation. And so it's an office of service and deed as it embodies Jesus' example. And if you saw the quote, did you guys see the quote at the very beginning of, of the bulletin? Check out this reflection quote. Sometimes it's just good to be reminded, what did the early church look like? I remember ben, Pastor Ben asked the question, you know, if. I forget how you phrase it, but basically like if somebody from the early church came and they just walked into one of these churches in America and, you know, they're from, you know, 125 AD Christians and they walked into average church in America, would they recognize what in the world's going on? Would they recognize that this is the church or does it look completely different than what it used to look like? This is what they look like back then. And I think we need to get back to more of this. It says, Christians have the commands of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah himself, etched into their hearts. They keep these commands looking forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. By the way, this was given as a defense to a Roman emperor who's looking at, he was persecuting Christians. So, you know, this isn't just him speaking like, you know, wish this was true. He's willing to put his neck out on this. He said, they do not engage in adultery or sexual immorality. They do not bear false witness. Neither do they covet that which belongs to others. They, belong, they honor father and mother. 
love their neighbors, judge according to justice, and do not do to others anything that they do not wish to be done to them. By the way, that just expounded the fifth commandment through the tenth, in case you didn't catch that. They comfort those who injure them, even trying to win them over as their friends. They're eager to do good to their enemies. They're gentle and easy to approach with an appeal. They abstain from unlawful lifestyles and all impurity. They neither neglect the widow nor oppress the orphan. What each one has, he's willing to give freely to care for the one who has nothing. If they see one of their number outcast, they take him under the roof and rejoice over him as they would over a brother. For they call themselves brother, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. They're even prepared to sacrifice their lives for the sake of the Messiah. That's pretty powerful. I hope we're like that as as the church. And um, because... Christianity has always been a religion of concern for others. We don't just care about souls, we also care about bodies, the whole person. I remember years ago going to and meeting with a, a school and, and the principal of the school and, and we were gonna try and do some tutoring and we helped get glasses for all the elementary school kids that couldn't, couldn't see, this was a while ago. And uh, it's a beautiful thing, but I remember meeting with this principal and she said something like she didn't like these after school clubs that would just come for an hour to try to get people saved. And she said they, they don't care about anything else but getting them, you know, basically all they care about is their souls. They don't care about their education. They don't care about any of those things. And it was just a principal speaking offhandedly. Like until you care for them tangibly, and help them with their schoolwork, well then we'll let you talk about their souls, but if you don't care for them, then it it comes across as disingenuous. And so Jesus healed people and he taught them. Donald Whitney in his book, 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health, and those are wonderful 10 questions. He says, throughout history, Christians have led the way in supporting widows and orphans, building hospitals, providing disaster relief on every continent in the world. Wherever a beachhead for the gospel of Jesus Christ has been established, medicine, education, and relief for the poor have followed. James tells us what true religion is. What was it? And what is it? To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so one of those questions that Donald Whitney asked of his 10 is to check your spiritual pulse this morning is do you have a growing concern for the spiritual and temporal needs of others? Is that concern growing or is it waning? And interestingly, we only have five references to deacons in the Bible. Now, the office is set up in Acts 6, but it doesn't say deacons. But, so you have five references to deacons in the Bible. Four of them are in this passage. The only other reference is Philippians 1.1, which says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So he's writing to the church, he's writing to the saints, but he's writing to the, to the elders, the overseers, and the deacons. And so what's interesting is we talk about the plurality of elders, there's always a plurality of deacons. It's always referenced, if you look up the word deacon in the Bible, just try to find it. If you can find a a deacon reference, you won't, because they're always plural. You gotta put the S on there. If you're gonna find it in a little search engine on your phone. There's always more than one. And so that the reason is, is they work as a group, as a team. And so deacons, 
Let's look at these, what is needed of these qualifications. They must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. Verse 8. So imagine putting verse 8 on your resume. Just try it, you know. I am honorable, respectful, and dignified. I'm not a hypocrite. I'm not two-faced. I'm not double-tongued. I don't have too much wine. I'm not having too much of it. I'm not addicted to it. And I'm not covetous or a greedy swindler. I've never seen that on a resume, is anybody? I mean, yet it's on God's job qualification needed for a deacon. To be a deacon, you must have mastery and self-control over words, over wine, over women, and money. Otherwise, you you can't be a deacon. So they had to be men of dignity and not double-tongued. John Calvin, who who did a lot of work with the deacons in the city of Geneva in the Reformation, He wrote this. He's talking about the difficult job it was for good deacons. He said it is necessary for them to be provided not only with the other graces of the Spirit, but also certainly with wisdom, for without it that task cannot be properly carried out. Thus they must be on their guard not only against the impostures and frauds of those who are far too inclined to begging and suck up what was needed for the brethren who were in extreme poverty, but also against the slanders of those who are constantly making disparaging remarks, even if there is no occasion for doing so. For as well as being full of difficulties, that office is also exposed to unjustified complaints. Deacons is often where a lot of the spiritual battles are taking place. Pray for your deacons, because they have a lot of work to do, and they often don't get the credit for it, because so much is done behind the scenes. But they're to be dignified, respectable, not double-tongued. And they're not to be given to wine. It doesn't say you can never have wine. It's just you're not to be given over to it. And part of that reason, I think, if you think of Proverbs 31, when uh, the mother is writing to the king, And she says, it's not good for kings to drink wine or rulers to desire strong drink, lest they drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. You're not going to think well if you're given over to wine and you're not going to care for the afflicted. And not greedy for dishonest gain. We see a lot of this actually in in the Bible. What happened when Mary poured out her expensive perfume on our Lord in worship? What did Judas say? Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Oh, man, he sounds really righteous, doesn't he? Why did he say that? Because he was greedy for dishonest gain, and he wanted to take some of that money for himself. We had some good deacons, church I was at before, and we had a a double signature policy. If any deacon check had to be made, two deacons had to sign the check. And this, we had some, one deacon, man, his, he was on it. He would check through the list and, and he came to me one day and he said, how come you signed this check? And so-and-so got money and there's only one deacon signature. And I had to say, Greg, what are you talking about? And he shows me the signature and it's not my signature. And we realized we had a thief in the church. And so she had forged my signature and she had forged one of the deacon's signatures. But thankfully, because of the two deacon signature policy, old Greg was all over that thing. And we found, we found out you know, who this was and uncovered a big mess. But there's warnings to this, you see, because Jesus, he was 
telling people about the Pharisees who are stealing from widows' houses. He would charge them of being full of robbery. He said, my house should be a house of prayer, but you've made it what? A den of thieves, a den of robbers. So this is a concern. So it's very important as deacons are entrusted with money. We have a deacon's fund that often has $15,000 in it or something. And that money has to be accounted for. And you need to know if you give the deacon's offering that it, it's not going to go off somewhere and into somebody's pocket. That they're trustworthy men. We've got good deacons and they have good policies in place. And they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Just as a good waiter knows the menu, a good servant of Christ knows the word of God. And they're able to give the word as they minister to, other, minister to others indeed. Otherwise, our deeds of love could be construed as just any other type of deed of love. This is different. Our deeds of love are done in the name of Jesus. My dad was a deacon, and some of my first experiences to deacons are wonderful. Coming home from college and seeing my dad on fire for the Lord, and he'd want me to come with him. And I learned more about, than I learned in seminary, about how to visit somebody in a nursing home how to visit somebody in the hospital because I just watched my dad. But he would go and he would love, but he would always share the word. And he would just share simple, beautiful truths as a wonderful deacon who loved to visit people that were shut in and the elderly. Huge heart for that. One of my good friends right out of college, he bounced around with different jobs. It's funny because now he's a CEO of a global company and he's making big money okay he took me out to a very nice restaurant when I was in Atlanta and it's like man I tease him because I mean I can remember when you were you know selling you know water filters and and the only one you sold was to your dad you know I mean well in the midst of between jobs my good friend here his transmission went out on his truck and here he is now in South Carolina his parents up in New York and they're not believers and he went to the deacons of the church and he asked for help. And the deacons paid for his transmission and got him back on his feet again. And let me tell you, that's a huge thing. I learned something this week. When my, when my sump pump went out, some of you may have saw my Facebook post, but what happened this week was when that storm came this week, all of a sudden we have this, we have this drain at the bottom of our stairs and it just fills up sometimes too fast. If the rain comes really hard, the drain doesn't drain fast enough. So you have to, hopefully there's more people at home than one and you can work as a team and you dump it over into the sump pump. Well, I went over to the sump pump, lifted up the thing and the sump pump is not, is not draining. And so now I gotta go walk all the way to the deep sink just to fill out the, to clean the drain. But then the bigger problem is the sump pump's not working. And so we just keep shoveling out water, gallon after gallon after gallon, and you start getting tired. And this is what you learn about relief. This is, this is where the illustration comes in, is that there's a difference between relief and development. If some of you guys remember, we went through this Mercy book, what was, uh, what's that Mercy book called? When Helping Hurts, thank you, Ed. The whole thing is we put all of our money into relief and not into development. But what I realized is we can do relief all we want at this thing. And poor Elise was getting tired, shoveling water gallon after gallon. I'm dumping it. Finally, I just sent Kim, you got to go to Home Depot and buy a sump pump. I texted Tom Webb and another guy. I said, just tell Kim what she needs to buy. But like, 
I'm in panic mode, you know? So, but, so we're just doing relief. We need a development. What these deacons did here for my friend wasn't just relief, it was development. We can't just do a little relief. He needs a transmission so he can start driving again. You see, that's, that's beyond just a little band-aid. You've actually fixed the problem. And so that's where the deacons often can be a wonderful help, sometimes of relief and sometimes in development. I know when Mary Boyd was here raising her kids and the deacons saw an opportunity to employ her to clean our church. And it worked wonderfully for her. And it was a great opportunity that deacons saw as a great way to, to, to help her, but also to employ her. And it worked out beautifully for years in our church. And so deacons fill a great role in the church. And, but I want you to know that it's, it's not... It's not just, um, even though the elders are the only ones that are told to be apt to teach, it doesn't mean the deacons never teach. The first martyr in the Bible was Stephen, and he was a deacon, and he was, he was killed after a very powerful sermon in Acts 7. And Philip was also a great preacher, and he was a deacon. But deacons are to hold the mystery of the faith here. And what's interesting is we're told what the mystery of the faith is, in case you're wondering, like, is this some mystical thing? Well, we're told in verse 16 of the chapter, what is the mystery? Well, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He or God was manifested in the flesh. Jesus took on flesh. Here's here's the creed of the church. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up in the glory. If you wanna know the simplest confession of faith before the apostles' creed, here it is, 1 Timothy 3.16. Jesus was revealed in the flesh, and his very flesh took on nails that went through tendons, and it was real flesh. And his head took on real thorns that were smashed with, with rod into his skull, and real blood came down. And when he was praying in the garden and, and praying for the cup to pass, that was real blood that was coming off of his forehead and dripping onto the ground. He was manifested in the flesh, and it was his very back of that flesh that was ripped to pieces as he's getting whooped. Jesus was manifested in the flesh, and he's vindicated by the Spirit. The Spirit shows up at his baptism, and he's, he's anointed for the ministry, and, and all along the way, the Spirit, he's saying, believe the Spirit, because the Spirit was what was filling him, enabling him to do the miracles that he did. And we're told even that the resurrection itself was that he was put to, li- put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. And the Spirit vindicated, vindicated Jesus, declaring that he is the Son of God with power. And so Jesus was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels. I think this word angelois is better translated messengers because it can be translated either way. You could say he was seen by angels. Well, he was always seen by angels, but if he's seen by messengers, what did you have to be to be an apostle? You had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. He was seen by, by, by messengers, and then he's proclaimed among the nations as they go out and preach the message, and people are be- beginning to believe, and then he's taken up in glory in the ascension, and he's also coming back in glory. That's the mystery of the faith 
that was once concealed in the Old Testament but now revealed in the New and now proclaimed by the apostles, believed on in the world. Do you believe this morning this mystery of the faith? This is our only hope. Now deacons were to be tested first. Isn't this interesting? It says, let them be, let them, let them be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Let's put it like this. If you think a man has great potential and that if he had the office, the office would make the man and he would reach his potential, you just need to give him a chance. That's exactly what the text is not saying, okay? It's just the opposite. What you see is the man is already serving. He's the guy picking up the chairs and vacuuming during the, during the lunch. He's the guy doing the dishes in the kitchen. He's already helping people. He's already meeting needs. He's already seeing a need and meeting it. And you, now you're putting the title on him because you're already seeing this acts, these acts of service. I read this week about an annual congregation meeting where the new candidates for the office of deacon were to be presented to the church. And when they came to be presented, they were nowhere to be found. And they're all looking around in the sanctuary and they're not there. And then finally they found him in the kitchen because they were washing the dishes from the congregational dinner. They, had, they passed the test, wouldn't you say? And it says their, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful in all things. All right, here's where it gets tricky. Put on your thinking caps for a minute, okay? The word there is not in the Greek. So, and the word wives can be translated, it's the word gunicus, and it can be translated women or wives. But it's translated in the very next verse as let the deacons each be the husband of one wife. Same word, okay? So it can be translated four different, people come up with four different ideas that the women here are referring to deaconesses the women could be referring to women who assist the deacons or the wives of deacons or the wives of deacons and elders. That's actually the view I take. So as simple as, it, it's, here's the problem. Paul doesn't, he's, he's vague for some reason. If he would have just added the pronoun, the definite article there in the Greek, which would have been altan, then we would know, oh, it's clear, it's their wives. It's deacon's wives, no brainer. If it was deaconesses, all he had, there's a Greek word for deaconess and he doesn't use it. All you gotta do is say deaconesses, diakonos in the feminine, and we got it. He doesn't say that. He just says women or wives. Okay, well who's, I think he's referring to both deacon and elders wives because the context is both and he's not being specific so I think it's both deacon and elders wives. But this is where some churches have seen that there is, uh, that you can have women deacons. And what we've done in the PCA is we've, we've debated this. I mean, up at the General Assembly letter, le- level, we had a, uh, a, c- a committee that worked on a paper, and we've really worked on this for a while. And what we've realized is that women are really important in the church, and they should be helping the deacons a lot and a lot more than they are. Because if you read 1 Timothy, for example, if you read chapter five, the whole chapter five of 1 Timothy is all about how to, how to deal with widows. Well, if you're not having any women help you work with the widows, that would create a problem. You need women that can help you in this process. 
Now, should they be ordained? And that's where, you know, so like, for example, our sister denomination, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, they, they, they ordained women deacons. And their, their rationale is that Phoebe in Romans 16, who's referred to as a servant, a female servant, it can be translated as deaconess. Phoebe may have been a deaconess. Or she could have just be a servant. It's, it's vague again. But I think there is some, there's some ground, there are at least some biblical arguments there, and it's not a position of authority in the church as a deaconess. But where we've landed as a denomination is that seeing the weight of evidence that, the, that the, it's much easier to translate this passage as to see it as referring to deacons' wives. And that Acts 6, when the office was set up, they said, choose seven men from among you. And that was specifically the, the male word, not the anthropos generic term. So we see the weight of evidence tipping the scales towards men. But we recognize that the women need to be uh, employed more and used in the church and the life of the body. In the early church, the women were amazing, the things they did. I read this week about in Egypt in the second century, the, the church and the women were going out into the public squares as nursing, nursing mothers. And they were often their pagan statutes and they would pick up the unwanted abandoned babies in the night. That's pretty amazing. And the ministry, I mean, so the women were very much a huge part of the uh, loving and deeds role in the church. And so it's important for us as deacons and elders to employ the gifts of the women in the church, even though it's not an ordainable position in our church to be a deaconess. I hope that makes sense. We can talk more about that. Then it says, let deacons be each, each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. We talked about this last week with elders. And the idea here is that biblical leadership, it starts with the family. You start there. And, and you start with the little and you, look, and you look at their personal life, same with the elder. And then it says, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good, under, good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is one of these puzzling verses because when it says deacons gain a good standing, good standing means status, rank, status or rank. And is it referring to their position in the church? They should be held up and, and honored and respected. I think that's true. But I also think it might be referring to in the world to come, that there's great rewards for deacons. They gain a good rank. You know, this idea is if they're going to be rewarded for their labors. And I do believe that those who labor, and particularly those who suffer for the cause of Christ in the church, they will be greatly rewarded for that. But then he also says they'll have great confidence in the faith. Well, it's like, well, would they not have confidence if they didn't use these gifts? And I think the answer is, well, maybe. Certainly as we use the gifts that God has given to us, this is true for all of us, the proverb holds true. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. And we, go in, we grow in confidence and assurance that the Christian faith is real and that it's just real for me, but God uses me and that I'm blessed and thankful to be a part of serving in my role in the church. In conclusion, for all of us, we should all aspire to be 
these different qualities of both elders and deacons. Like, this is what a godly disciple looks like. And so as you, if you're a young lady and you're looking for a godly man someday, just as a, as a guy, I'd say, man, you're looking for a Proverbs 31 woman. That's what you're looking for. Well, I say to a lady, you're looking for a 1 Timothy 3 guy. You're looking for a guy that's living out 1 Timothy 3. I mean, these care, you know, they, they love these things. But in conclusion, let's remember Christ. Remember the assurance of pardon. And let me give you the literal translation here. Whoever would be a great among you must be your deacon. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to receive diaconal care, but to serve as a deacon and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your deacon work. So humble. You couldn't have gone any lower and saved us from the pit, from hell itself. We thank you that your blood was shed, shielding us from the wrath of God as we sang about. We bless you and praise you for this love that was poured out. And Lord, we thank you that you brought us into the church. And may we love the church. May we love one another. May we love being together. And Lord, help us to fight against our tendencies towards isolation and to pull away and to be engaged with your body and to love your church and to find our, our niche, the place where you've gifted us and then also the places where we just need to fill in the ranks. Lord, help us all to use our gifts and talents to bring you glory and good for our brothers and sisters. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.